0: the rest of us to uh, psalm the 132nd chapter of psalm 132 psalm 132 is the young people are going appreciate them going to class and learning okay take those opportunities parents real seriously about finishing those books There's something about memorizing the Bible when you're young. talk about it today a little bit. But I learned most of the Bible that I know probably before I was in sixth grade. So make sure that uh, your kids are busy and working and taking it seriously. Psalm 132 then, Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore unto the Lord and vowed unto the mighty God of Jacob. Surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house, nor go up into my bed; I will not give sleep to mine eyes, nor or slumber to mine eyelids, until I find out a place for the Lord, and habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Lo, we heard it at Ephratah; we found it in the fields of the woods. We will go into his tabernacles; we will worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, into thy rest; thou in the ark of thy strength. Let thy priests be clothed with righteousness, and let thy saints shout for joy. For thy servant David's sake, turn not away the face of thine anointed. Now notice, what it, if we go, just look back in verse number 2, how he sweared unto the Lord, okay? I know we're just reading the text, but notice that David swears, or vows a vow, and it's reciprocated in verse number ten, 11. The Lord has sworn, in verse 11, in truth unto David. He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. If thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them, their children shall also sit upon thy throne forevermore. For the Lord hath chosen Zion. He hath desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation and her saints with Shall shout aloud for joy. There will I make the horn of David to bud. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies will I clothe with shame, but upon himself shall his crown flourish. Now, next um, Thursday, Elijah is going to bring our message for us while I'm out of town preaching. And then the following Thursday, Brother Jacob Christian will be here. So it'll be a little while before I get back to the study here in the book of Psalms, and I don't yet know if the latter portion of this Psalm will uh, uh, arrest our attention for another week. We are going to look at the beginning of this and focus our attention eventually from verses 1 through 10, and specifically in verse number 6, lo, we heard of it at Ephrata, we found it in the fields of the wood. (coughs) We will go into his tabernacle, we will Worship at his footstool. Tonight we want to talk about seeking after Christ. Seeking after Christ. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray for the anointing of your Holy Spirit in a way that is evident simply by the work that we do in our own hearts, that you do in our own hearts. Please bless this time. And Lord, I need your help in Jesus' name. Amen. So David became king, and at that time... um, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord had long been forgotten. If you remember from 1 Samuel chapter 4, it had been taken by, from the children of Israel by the Philistines. And you know the story that they had a plague come on them and then they put it in a, a, a cart pulled by a, a, a cow and that goes out there, brings it back to the edge. and But then what happened there at Beshemus probably kept maybe made them afraid when many of them looked into the ark and they were judged by God. David is longing though, he said, enough's enough, the worship of God has gone on for generations now. Generations, all the life of Samuel, all the life of King Saul. And now he comes into this reigning of opportunity and he says, hey, I'm the civil leader now, I can do something about this. Why should I have a home? David knew what it was like to not have a home, didn't he? Knew what it was like to hide and to run from King Saul and his army. In the first uh, few Psalms it says, I've been chased by 10,000 soldiers. All these people trying to kill him. And he said, why should I then come into my house, into my tabernacle, go up and sleep in my comfortable bed... And the ark of God is not where it ought to be. Interesting. David's heart was so full of zeal for God that he desired that every part of the worship that the Lord had established in that time would be 100% correct. I wonder if we could catch a little vision of that zeal. That's the whole message tonight. That we would see a zeal that every part of the worship that God has for us today would be 100% correct in my life. We don't go down to a temple anymore. The uh, Bible says in 1 Corinthians that the body, we are the temple of the living God. Instead, at the time that the ark was used, it was established that they would have it in the tabernacle, then later the temple. It was after you walked into the Holy of Holies, the structure that was the only structure on the Temple Mount, the Tabernacle Court, and the first part, the first room was this holy place and there was a veil between that and the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Lord or the Ark of the Covenant would stand. And uh, David said, "It's, it's enough that we've been doing things without the presence of the Ark. And David says, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go find the ark. He says in verse number four, look, I will not give sleep to mine eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find out a place for the Lord. And the reason he says that that way is because for their worship system, the ark represented the presence of God, the presence of God. It is uh, for us to, to find his job to find the ark. And to go to that holy place and set up that temple building and to put the ark where it belonged. Now I'm going to have the first point tonight describing the ark. It could almost be like it's a, a long introduction to the few points to follow. It'll be longer by far than the other few points that I have tonight. But describing the ark, the ark, I think you understand, is the center focus of the ceremonial law of its time. Uh, When you walked in that courtyard, the first thing you ran into was the brazen altar. And for us, that represents the cross. Anytime there's brass in the Old Testament dealt with judgment, or the New Testament, Revelation chapter 1, we're going to get to before the end of this month. He said, His eyes were as fire and His feet as brass. That's because He's about to, in judgment, tread out the winepress of the wrath of God in the book of Revelation. And the brass brazen altar was because there, Jesus, instead of me suffering for my sins, a lamb or a bullock or in some cases even a meal offering was offered on this altar so that the judgment that I deserved was put on another. And every sacrifice there represented Jesus taking my place and yours. An amazing thing that when you study this, to say that the Old Testament does not prepare us for Christ is an ignorance of what the Old Testament pictures. A little bit yonder over here in the courtyard was a little place to wash. It was, it was called the brazen laver. There to wash all the blood. Again, a reminder that this is a bloody religion. Full of blood. Blood shed in the morning. Blood shed in the afternoon. Blood shed when you recognized sin that you had unconfessed before. Personal sins that were brought with a lamb to be killed and its blood spilled out. This was a bloody place. And the Lord says, hey, you need to wash. And it was a reminder of that. Then when you walked in this building, there was in that building a roof and a door that was shut. And it was dark in there. And the only light that would be available was a, uh, a a lamp, a candelabra. And that was lit by a special oil that was never to run out. And you remember in Eli's time when Samuel laid him down to sleep and he says, "Ere the, the lamp of God went out in the temple. Eli was negligent of his duties and negligent of what he was supposed to be have done with His own family and then with His worship there. Never supposed to go out. It represents the Holy Spirit. You know, it ought to light your way in your Christian faith. After you've been to the cross, the light that you should have should only come from the Spirit of God. It's all about our relationship with Jesus Christ. And in there was the altar of incense where you burned. And by the way, the coals from that altar... the had to come from the brazen altar outside. You couldn't just strike a match and burn it. It represents the prayers of God's people. Do you know what ought to lighten your prayers and make them effectual? Is the fact that you've been saved. The cross of Christ is behind every prayer we pray. The cross of Christ is the power that we pray because we come to Him not in our own merits but in the merits of another, the one who suffered on that brazen altar. Jesus Christ dying on the cross. There in that room was one last thing, a table. And every week brand new bread was put out there. Bread without leaven. Bread that was there for the nourishment of the priests. But was dedicated and separated for the Lord. This Bible is dedicated and separated by God. And it is your nourishment. It is where you find the sustenance for your day. No Bible, then you're going to lose your battles. You're just going to lose your battle. Uh, No Bible, there's no wisdom. No Bible, there's really no relationship. Everything about that place dealt with a relationship. But when that veil was rent in two, it revealed behind it the Ark of the Covenant. And there was that Ark. And the first thing you'll notice about that Ark is that upon it sat what was known as the Mercy seat, a little seat with the cherubims of gold whose wings touched each other. And that mercy seat represents for us that there is no way for us to get to the presence of Christ without the mercy of God. Our life is wrapped up in His mercies. The Ark of the Covenant is Jesus Christ, the golden mercy seat above the Ark. And when the priest would go in there, the only time he would would be on that Day of Atonement. And he could not enter there without blood. He had to go with the blood of a sacrifice. And then uh, those in the Old Testament who came to that place, by the way, in the person of the high priest, meaning that he bore the names of all of Israel, Everyone whose faith was in the coming Messiah went vicariously in the person of that high priest. And there he offered the blood. He would sprinkle it. First he had to do it for himself because he was a sinner. Jesus in the Hebrews says he needed no sacrifice for his own sins because he had no sin, praise God. And he went into that veil and offered his own blood. That's what it all meant. He was the sacrifice, but He was the high priest. He was the blood, and He was the deliverer of that blood. He was the scapegoat, meaning by the hands of a strong man, all the sin was gone, and remission means never to be seen again. Our sins were sacrificed for and an atonement made and the way to the presence of God. But it had to be through the mercy seat. No blood and there's no going to the presence of God. You think you're going to get into the presence of God simply because you serve and do and work? Then you'll never be good enough. And uh, there in the contents of the ark, if you were to open it up and look in your mind, go back to what you see inside there. What was there? Well, you all know this from your Sunday school days that there's a table of stone. The two tables with the Ten Commandments. Not the ones that he broke, of course, because those were gone, and he had to hew out his own two two tables of stones and go back into Mount Sinai to that awesome experience where God then wrote on those stones again, those great commandments. You see, the mercy seat does never overlook the demands of the law. You're going to come to Christ, you have to be righteous. Righteous. You have to be completely without offense to the law of God. And the only way that happens is if you borrow the righteousness of somebody else. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ, His righteousness is given to us by faith. And our sin is given to Him. The contents are so very important. Important to you and I because there is no overlooking your sin. The law is there. It has its place. Why is it in the ark? Because I believe it's the heart of God. You see, the ark is not, the the Old Testament law is an impression of the character of God on the pages of Scripture. It is God who is holy. It is God who is truth. It is God who does not look upon sin. It is a God that said there had to have no other gods before me. Not to take my name in vain. Not to do that. God said that. God said to obey your parents. God said to remember the Sabbath day. God said to not kill or steal or covet or bear false witness. It is the God of heaven who said that. And it's the God before whom all mankind will be judged one day except for those who have been under the blood. Our sins, as guilty as we are, placed on Jesus the sacrifice, way back at that cross that is now, like 26 yards behind you. It is a memory when you came to the cross of Christ, and there your burden fell, of all the guilt of your sin, and you took upon the robe of righteousness, which was not your own but came from Jesus Christ. And it was like a call from the inner sanctuary, from the ark itself that said, Come, child, now you have access. And come boldly to obtain mercy and to find help in time of need. Oh, and there you'll find a pot of manna. Have you ever looked in the ark in the Old Testament? Look in there and find that pot of manna. I mean, you know how it is if they would have kept the manna. Remember, they went out and they took too much and kept it for the next day, and it bred worms. Do you remember that story in the book of Numbers? And uh, maybe it's in the book of Exodus. But, but, but they disobeyed, but then at the same time they're seeing this, the Lord says, well, go out on, uh, on your Friday before the Sabbath and gather up twice as much. And these guys are saying, well, uh, we kept too much, and it bred worms, and it stunk. Now we have to bring more? And uh, yes, God's commands are always true. You know God's commands don't even have to make sense to you to be true? Do you know that God's obedience to God is not conditioned on your reasoning, your filter? Just obey God. Just trust in God. You say, God, it doesn't make any sense to tithe uh, like I should. Yes, it may not make sense, but just obey God. You'll never be sorry. And they went out that day and and the Lord said for a memorial, go gather some. And He said, put it in a pot, put it down in that ark. Isn't that something? That when God says something's going to rot, it'll rot. When God said, I'm going to preserve it, I'll preserve it. Like He preserved His Word. He said, the words of the Lord are preserved. They're kept. God's keeping these words from this generation in Psalm 12. And forever, God's words are Kept, and they're always there, unmolested, in the hands of God. Man, they say, you know that LDS Church said, man has tempered with the Bible. Well, certain men have, but God made a promise. His Word is always going to be pure. It'll always be available. And it's always for you, friend, to take the Word and put it inside for you to digest. The manna represents what makes you Alive in Christ, His Word. What else is inside of that ark? One more thing. I read today that in Deuteronomy, they put a a copy of the book of Deuteronomy in there, but I'll tell you that uh, there's also a rod in there that budded, isn't there? They put uh, Aaron's rod inside in response to the challenges against Moses' leadership under that uh, story in Numbers 17. Uh, His authority within the congregation of Israel was being challenged. And uh, they said, uh, the Lord said, let me tell you what to do, Korah. They were the cousins of Moses. Come on yonder, all you rebellious people. Everybody take your staff and write your name on the side. Put them inside and when I, the next day you'll pull one out and one will bud. And there Aaron's budded, God says. Look out, Cor! I'm going to kill you. How about that? Do you know something? It represents the need that I have, my rebellious heart. When I fellowship with the Lord, He takes my rebellious heart and He brings me under the submission of His Holy Spirit. You say, Pastor, I need that, you need that, I need that. As we said from the song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We feel it in our heart, but I in my relationship I needed the, the work of God on a daily basis to break down that rebellious spirit and bring me under the authority of God Himself. These things are all represented, every part, even down to the structure of the tabernacle itself, all represented something concerning the ministry of Jesus Christ and your relationship with God. It is for us to look back then on these shadows, as they're called in the New Testament, and it says, but the body, a New Testament church, is of Christ. So those were shadows, but we have something better. What do we have? We have Jesus. We have a finish. We don't have to bring a lamb to the altar. Jesus is forever a completed sacrifice. We have salvation in our hearts. But that fellowship that was made possible by the Old Testament sacrificial system, faith in the coming Messiah, is exactly the purpose of your salvation. I know it seems like salvation's purpose is so that you don't have to die and go to hell. And the Lord tells us to preach like I did Sunday about hell, and that somebody ought to fear going to hell and want to come back to the Savior for that eternal salvation. But I hope, friends, as Christians on a Thursday night midweek service, you've come to the place that you know that you're saved, you're secure, that robe of righteousness came upon your heart, and you realize that God's plan for every Christian is a very deep, abiding fellowship With Jesus Christ. And David understood that. Maybe from his youth out there among the sheep. And writing some of the Psalms. And learning how to play his harp. And maybe later on as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. In writing most of what we have in front of us in this great work. The book of Psalms. David said, I know what it's like to fellowship with God. I know what it's like. And he said, it's more important than anything else in my life. So we come from our point about describing the ark. And secondly, we come to the desire for the ark. And we see it in verse number 1, Lord, remember David and all his afflictions. Now, I didn't look up this word, but I'm told by a commentator that that word afflictions is synonymous with the word Anxiety. And we thought we invented that. You know, the anxiousness, sleepless nights because of problems, or the unknown saying, I don't know what's going to happen the next day. We thought we were the inventors of that kind of thing. But David says, Lord, remember, I've got lots of problems. I've got lots of anxiety. And I've got lots of affliction. Look upon me and my afflictions. In fact, as I see David uh, as he approaches the throne, having quite a bit of anxiety to deal with. As a pastor, I get to hear it sometimes, and I'm glad to. If you need to, if it makes you feel better and we can pray together about the things for which you are anxious, you come and see me. We'll drink some coffee, have a piece of pie. I'll break my diet sometimes. And uh, we'll talk about these things and pray with you about them. But the best place to take them is to the Lord. This, this young man on that one day, down at the house, back when nothing was a problem. you remember when you were a teenager and everything was easy? <laughs> I mean, it was just easy, right? You, when you look back at it, kind, you say, life was never so simple as when all I was upset about was my turn to do dishes. <laughs> life was different back then. And uh, you know something? David said, uh, it was that day when all of my brothers, I came in late to the house and I didn't know they were having a religious meeting. And there the prophet had the horn of oil and he looked on all of my brothers and then he looked down at me and he said, there's the one. And then he dumped oil on my head and said, I'm going to be the king. But Saul was still reigning and Saul was starting to act really, really uh, unreasonably. It wasn't going well. Under Saul, much of the country was taken over by the Philistines. Under Saul, they had not retrieved the Ark of the Covenant. Under Saul, there really was no telling whether your king was going to go down and uh, go to church or go down and see a witch at Endor. Things were not right. Things are not right. They had the Biden administration. In Israel at the time. Right? Just don't know what's going to happen. Right? But God is watching. And here is David called upon. He after, he's called upon. Go play your harp for the king. Can you imagine the anxiety he had? But God said I was. Could you imagine hearing him say, But Pastor, I got to talk to you. God said I was going to be the king, and I don't know what's happened. And then you find him over hiding and running. What's that you got in your hand, David? I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done it, but it's a piece of the clothing of Saul. I had an opportunity. Abner told me, uh, who was Joab told me I should kill him. But I said, no, but I'm so sorry I took this little piece. David, anxious? Probably in a way that you and I have never seen. Have you ever come to the point in your life where you thought, this isn't going to work, it's not going to go on, I'm failing. And if you have, you're just like David. So what did David do? Well, he probably went down down to the worst part of the desert, you know, and he probably found himself a place like Hagar and sat down and said, I'm just going to sit here till I die. That's not what we find. David comes to the place where he says, I know what is important to me. I'm not going to give rest to my eyes. I'm not going to do anything else. I'm not going to go to my house. I'm not going to enjoy myself until the relationship with the Ark of the Covenant is completely right. Why the big deal, somebody might say. Why is it such a big deal? David, you got so many things to worry about. I mean, you got you got problems. I mean, they got armies coming together uh, uh, up there, and uh, no, in uh, in all the surrounding countries. Don't you know you have problems? Come on, quit fooling around with this ark thing. You tried it once, and remember, they they put their hand on the ark and died. Yeah, we did it the wrong way, but I'm not going to sleep till we get it right. I'm going to find out all the, all the business of my national kingdom that's now multiplying in its difficulties and look at all the problems that Saul created and, and the devastation financially and the enemies have taken control of some of our people. But before I take care of any of that, I've got to find the ark of God. Boy, we have our priorities mixed up, don't we? If the ark of God represents your relationship with God, then the first priority of your life, the greatest and the most important thing you have in mind, is to fix that relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing else is more important. That's why David said, hey, if you read there, I'll not come into my tabernacle, my house. He said, I've dwelt a lot of days. And when Absalom's story enters in, he's going to spend more days outside Uh, outside of his house, running. I will not give sleep to my eyelids or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord. Why? Because something isn't right. Something isn't right. Don't overlook this. There is no personal comforts that should be there until God's presence is secured. We're more interested in comfort than we are with communion with Jesus Christ. Some of us want to earn money and we'll get up and run away from our homes without the presence of God. We're interested in money more than we are in the filling of the Holy Spirit of God. Friends, listen to me. A Christian has to realize, maybe it's because we don't realize how big God is, If you have a small God, no wonder you don't expect God to do much in your life. But if you can imagine God as the God of the Bible and He wants to perform miracles in your life so that you're not looking on your life saying, hey, uh, it's just like everybody else's. Your life is not supposed to be like everybody else's. It is supposed to be adorned with the miracles of God all through your experience with the fellowship that is beyond this world where the Lord says He makes us to sit together with Him in heavenly places in Ephesians 2 verse 6. That you're not of this world because your heart and your mind dwell where your citizenship really is in the place of the kingdom of God. Friend, I think we don't realize how important it is. And we ought to just say we ought to have the desire as not just just an extra, but a priority. Not just a, if I'm going to be a good Christian, right? That's the way people feel about getting all their dishes done in their house. Why am I thinking about dishes tonight? Maybe I'm hungry, Sharon. I eat supper. I'm thinking about dishes. You know, you ever go to somebody's house and you're visiting and the dishes are piling up? Now you're going to be afraid to have me over. Um, I'm going to knock on your door and you're going to say, give me ten minutes. (laughs) Buy yourself a dishwasher, stick them in there, hide them. But you know, they, they think, oh, I'm going to be a good housekeeper today. I'm going to get all my dishes done. Why? What's the motivation behind that? So I can pat myself on the back. I can have a clean home. Yay! Right? Is that what Christianity on the same level? Why am I going to be a good Christian today so that I am a good Christian? Is it about you? So that I can feel good about myself on the same level as having your closet clean. What is this about? We have, a, we have a view of God that is as if He is over here distant from me and my life happens over here. I visit Him once in the morning and then I go on with my life and my life then after that is blessed but it's not any different than anybody else's life. You can compare me to anybody else who works in the same factory or the same position that I have. Why? Because you've lived your life in practice. I'm not talking about in theory. In practice with the presence of God only Uh, 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 an extra and not a priority in your life. And until we come to understand that He wants to fill you, that the entire temple of God is our body, and He said, I have indwelt you, the Shekinah glory of God showing up on the temple, right upon that very mercy seat, the shining of God that is there in the Old Testament, It showed up in so many occurrences. And friend, God says, I want that within your heart. But I can't. You've crowded me out with things. You can't because you've crowded me out with your schedule. You're enjoying the comforts of this world. And yet the ark of God is dwelling somewhere yonder and things are not right. And you're content to leave it that way. There's something about this passage. David says, I have a desire. Third point today, the directing. So we have the description, the desire, the directing to the ark. Look at verse number 6. Just briefly, I want to get on with a couple other things. Lo, we heard of it in Ephrata. We found it in the fields of the wood. Wherever you have left the walk with God, you go and find it. You know what Ephrata is? Well, Bethlehem is in that area called Ephrata. Think about this for a moment. Just dwell for a moment. I don't want to take a lot of time on this. Bethlehem is in that. Remember in Micah chapter 5? But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah. He said, when I was a little kid, I heard about this. Hmm. I remember I heard about the Lord from the time I was little. My mom used to sing me lullabies about the verses of the Lord. She'd read me scriptures. My dad would do that. God's name is mingled in my earliest memories. I heard of it in Ephrata. Where is God's presence in your life? Where was the last time you remember that you knew you were filled with the Spirit of God and you were right with God? God says, if you have to go back to Ephrata, go all the way back. And anything more important than you know your relationship with Jesus is right. Isn't that interesting? The direction. If you have not had a Savior, if you're here and you're not saved, run to Jesus. You know, here it didn't say run to a church. It said run to Jesus. You have trust in a church, you're in the, on your way to a Christless eternity in the fire of burning with hell. You have faith in a church, or if you have faith in your own works, if you think grace is defined as me doing all of my effort, and then where I can't do anymore, God then fills in the blanks. That's not grace, that's works. And it will not get you to heaven. If you need a Savior, run to Him. You'll find Him in Ephrata. Directing to the ark. And then let me finish today with the duties to the ark. We look at what he says. To say, Pastor, what should I do? In verse number 7, we will go. So there is a duty to approach the ark. Wherever you left the presence of God, get back there. Make it a priority. Run to Him. Don't be satisfied. You say, Pastor, if I go all the way back there, God's going to put some demands on my life that I didn't want to go back to. Friend, listen to me. They were wonderful demands. They were holy demands. They were loving demands because our Savior does everything good. He does everything right. And in your heart, you'll never be happy until you go back to the place of God's presence in your life until, un, instead of going on satisfied, generation after generation from the time of Eli and all the time of Samuel and all the time of Saul until David says, Enough's enough. I need to get right with God. Why don't you have that desire? So God says, Run to Him. Notice that it's emphatic. We will. First person, whether it's singular or plural, I or we should be shall. That's why we shouldn't re-translate the Bible. You would totally lose the emphatic uh, uh, expressions of the Psalms when it says we will. It's saying I am determined. I am going to fight against my own laziness. I'm going to fight against the lethargy that has swallowed uh, now three generations of Christian leaders. And I I am going to put my focus upon the ark of God and the presence of God and no matter what cost it has, to my comforts, and to my life. I'm going to get right with God. And praise God. Once you start going there, God will meet you there. Second thing he does in the last point of the day, the duties is approaching the ark, and the last one is adoration for the ark. Again, verse number seven. We will go into his tabernacles. We will worship at his footstool. That's a humble place to be, but He is our sovereign. He is our God. So I have to ask you, in deep solemnity, at the feet of Christ, do you worship Him? Are we relegating our worship only to the services at church? This is it. I'm going to worship service so three times a week. Praise God you're faithful. This is Thursday night crowd. Three times a week we worship. Friend, listen to me. When we get into God's presence, you want to know why you, when you're there? When it's no longer about you. When it no longer, Lord, I need this, and I need this, and I need this. He went from, Lord, remember my anxiety, to, Lord, I'm looking forward to worshiping you. Not face to face but my face down at God's footstool. Isn't that glorious? And you know what happened to his anxieties? Like like the magician who makes the little ball or the coin disappear. Where'd it go? In the psalm, it's gone. Oh Lord, remember all my anxieties. Life is going to about fall apart. It's going to go into the depths of despair. I feel like it's all over with. Listen to me. Get into the presence of God and it's a cure for your anxieties God says then you'll stop worrying about you and it'll all be about worshiping Jesus Christ and when you're at that point then guess what you're right where God wanted you to be that's a joy and uh, we're in the middle of the week we're setting ourselves to examine our own private lives because this is none about this, this is public. It all goes down to a person's inner relationship with Jesus Christ. It's exciting, though. Did you ever stop to think how exciting it is that God wants to meet with each one of us? Who are we to deserve that? And we're nothing, you know that. And yet God loves you. But he doesn't love you for your life to be comforted. He loves you to reciprocate with you seeking Him and worshiping Him. What a a complex psalm. I don't know, maybe the Lord in a few weeks will direct our attention to what is hidden in that last half of that where the Lord says some things in there I would love the opportunity to address. But for us to look at the Old Testament and not see that it was all about relationship, even in the Old Testament, is to miss the whole point. Do you desire the presence of God? Or are you content with the status quo that has been there for generations? We haven't seen a heaven-sent revival, to my knowledge, since 1904. Down there in Wales. Friends, it's time to seek after God. Would you pray with me? Give you an opportunity to talk to the Lord. I don't believe any such thing is solved in one invitation. But whatever is uh, solved is going to begin in an invitation. It's going to begin by saying, A recognition at the beginning that says, Lord, amidst all of my afflictions, all of my anxiety, I recognize the problem. Somewhere, some time ago, maybe back at Heferta. I quit walking with you. And out of everything in this life, give me a desire to want, a zeal to want your presence more than I want comfort. Father, I pray that you deal with us in this invitation. Thank you for such a word as this. Your psalm has ministered to our hearts over 130 times. Ministered to our hearts. And we thank you again for tonight. that you'd help us to seek after you with all of our heart and our mind and our soul. In uh, Jesus' name I pray, amen.